0: All right, well, good morning and welcome everyone. I'm Nasuda Arendt, Center for Global Development, and uh, it's my privilege to welcome all of you to this event on behalf of uh, ODI. And and I'll turn in a moment to Sarah Tribiano, who's going to be the moderator for today's event. Uh, on behalf of ICRIA and uh, Deepak Mishra sitting there, the chief executive of, of ICRIA, and uh, on behalf also, I want to add, of uh, the Buddhist Institution, uh, Omir Faras, uh, are sitting here and they've been very much part of the core team. And uh, finally, on behalf of the uh, London School of Economics, because uh, Actually, Hans Peter Larkes and uh, I will say Amar Pacharya again because Amar is a man who wears many hats, uh, have all been part of this core team. And uh, this is the team that has supported the independent experts group uh, headed by uh, Mr. N.K. Singh, who's here and, and who will actually present the report in a moment, but also Larry Summers, uh, who's been the co convener of this. Uh, Group. Larry's not here, uh, personal reason he couldn't attend uh, the meetings, but he and I had an exchange uh, of uh, WhatsApp messages, at a time that was quite early for me, and it must be quite late for him in, in Boston. But he, he's very focused on, on how we're going to take this agenda forward. And we supported this group to produce, as you know, two two reports first one was the one that was done at the end of June, uh, Triple Agenda, which set the broad frame for how we thought multilateral uh, development banks were core part of the effort and process to scale up support to countries uh, as they dealt with uh, their development uh, agenda and uh, how to integrate into their thinking about development the impact on global public goods, of their work, but more importantly, the impact of global public goods on their development strategy, how to integrate that to climate work. And then we've now produced a uh, second uh, volume, which is the one that we're going to be uh, making available today. And this is really the volume that goes from the the sort of what needs to be done and why, to the how to go about it. It it delves a bit more into business models, into the culture change, into the kinds of changes that are needed, both within the institutions, but also amongst the shareholders, to be able to ensure that the ambition that we want to set, which we believe is necessary uh, for the next uh, few years, for the MGBs to play the role that uh, we want them to, or we believe they need to play, uh, can be delivered. And that's what we're going to try to focus on today. So we have a, a, a terrific panel that, that Sarah is going to uh, moderate. And uh, what I'd like to do now, if he agrees, that we'll, I'll turn it over to Sarah for, for leading us through that process. And then we'll allow time for all of you, if you have any questions, to raise whatever questions you have. And we'll make sure that uh, we give you whatever answers we can best we can. Today, so, Sarah, over to you. you oh, sorry, are you going to come in and say something at this point? You were sitting so comfortably there that I thought <laughs> you, you decided to do a thing. Are you coming in? Yes. Come no on. Thank you, Mustuf, and good morning,
1: everyone. Nearly six months ago, this week, the independent expert group had the first in-person meeting in Washington, D.C. on the sideline of the second Finance minister in central bank governance. Since then, the IG has made more than 12 times, once every fortnight over the last six months. The core technical team comprising of experts from Bookings, CGB, LSE, ODI, and the Indian Council of Research of International Economic Relations, which I represent, have made more than 30 times. That is at least once every week and often twice a week. Apart from the internal meetings, we had more than 200 plus consultations seeking views of more than 600 developing professionals. Many of you are in this room as well. So this is not just a report. It's a labor of love of a group of people who deeply care about development, who understands MDBs inside out, and who saw this as the last opportunity to make a meaningful impact on this matter. Therefore, I'm deeply grateful to each of the IG and Koti members for their continuous engagement and contribution. If IG brought the expertise, the Indian G20 presidency brought the mandate. The terms of reference reflected the views of the Global South and brought new ideas and topics to the table. Unlike the previous attempts to reform the multilateral development banks with truncated terms of reference, the Indian presidency wanted us to cover every aspect of MDB reform. Their management, their operating model, their financing capacity, and MDB's acting as a system. And they wanted us to start and finish the report in the Indian presidency. So we are deeply grateful to the finance minister and a core team for the leadership and unwavering support to the IG. This event, in a way, is not just a public launch of a report, but in a way a celebration of the six months of hard labor and its sweet success. Yesterday, the G20 finance ministers and bank governors met, and they actually had finalized the community which has a very positive flavor of the report, including the idea that the MDB should become better, bolder and bigger, and even we talking about potential capital increase. The shift in the FMCBG's position between Granthina and Marrakesh is tangible and significant, and that has been made possible by the work of this group. So finally, let me conclude by saying that we all know that MDB reform is not a one-shot game. It's a project to be pursued over years and perhaps decades. Several of the IGN board members have committed to continue to pursue this idea in the coming months and years. And I'd like to thank uh, at least of the funders from the Ministry of Finance, for foundation, the Foundation for providing us the resources to keep pursuing this agenda. I'd also like to thank Mr. Singh for having steering this group, for being always present And for ensuring that the report has what he calls prescriptive values, for us the success of the report is not an end of the individual agenda; rather, it's the beginning. Thanks for your attention.
2: Thank you so much, Masuda Deepak. Can I invite Vera, Nick and Kate to come and we'll get started with the discussion? Good morning, everyone. I'm Sarah Pantriana's most friend of the Chicken executive at ODI, and I'm absolutely delighted to that here. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. I need
1: to lean in, or can
2: you hear? <laughs> That's okay. I was just saying, I'm really delighted to be here to moderate the discussion on the report of the IEG initiative, which is an initiative that Martin Wurtu, is the chief economics commentator of the FT, defined as the most important contribution of the G20 presidency. So we have a great endorsement for that. And as both yeah, people, is there a hand? Thanks. This collaboration continues in every respect. I was just about to say, you know, as as Mansud and Deepak said, it's been fantastic actually to organize the event together with ICLEAR and CGT, and this reflects a very strong collaboration we've had for the past six months with these three think tanks and other colleagues working very closely um, together, which I think demonstrates that think tanks can work as a system, not just the MDPs. Um, we give you an example to the MDBs for us. So we have a, a fantastic panel to discuss the report that we named the Star Panel. Sing, Songwe, Stern, and of course Sara, to discuss um, the main take, the main sort of findings of the report, the main recommendations. Um, so we'll start you know, with uh, uh, NK, who's going to tell us why, you know, how the MDBs. Can uh, change, can reform themselves you know, to be better, older, bigger, mm-hmm. bigger at the end. I think. <laughs> better and bolder are more important for me, um, individually as a system, and I'm working with uh, um, you know, sort of national governments and uh, with the private sector. Um, please amplify the conversations online. We have a great audience uh, that is also joining us online. Um, please reform of the NBV hashtag. Uh, if you want to tweet or X, should say now, I will come to you after the panel has made the first uh, um, comments, rather comments for questions, um, and I'll be taking comments from the online audience as well. So, okay, we'll start with you. Um, why and how should the NBV change?
0: Whatever. Well, I think that uh, first of all, uh, let me say how grateful I am for this opportunity less than 24 hours since I made the formal presentation of this report to the Finance Minister of Government of the Central Bank uh, yesterday evening. We finished at about uh, Past 9 p.m., and uh, I had the privilege of hearing, therefore, the comments of all the finance ministers across the globe and other important international organizations on this report. So, to address this question, let
2: We
0: break it in two parts. First, why are MD still relevant, considering that the Bretton Woods Institution is uh, now of some vintage, should they not be bound up, recreated, restructured, and in some ways recognize uh, that uh, geopolitical and other changes in terms of the balance of power, and other alternatives which have come up uh, are better ways to look at the development needs of the world. And why should MDBs continue to own what they were doing? That's the first question. When we believe, that was fairly, mm-hmm. we believe, and that was fairly early in the game, that the MDBs continue to be the most important architecture, the overall framework of uh, the development tactics for several reasons. First and foremost, exceeding exceedingly impressive track record in the Minnesota IBRD, for just a capital base of about 20 billion or so, successfully gained over 900 billion. No better example of efficient financial intermediation. Range. Second is transparency, system of governance, predictability, and processes which are public And it's very impressive record being able to harness I mean, the hard income structural economic policy changes across the globe. There is no other institution. Which can match this. And I think there is always old sanguine law that when you have something already going, uh, one both that, to improve that, then to start the process of increasing. Now, over the years, clearly, several geopolitical and other changes, the needs of finance itself have altered very dramatically. I have the privilege of being on my left. Not only two of my most esteemed colleagues in this independent expert group, believe me, without their contribution, this report would not have been possible. Uh, both uh, Nick and Peter have lent their uh, domain knowledge, their gravitas and credibility to the orchestration of this So. Apart from that, of course, the fact that it is their report, and I see Amar sitting here, which is really, in some ways, to ask me, sir, the starting point, for good or for bad, uh, we accepted their three people's joint report. That, from current levels of financing, the world would roughly need between now and 2030 three trillion dollars a year. To address not only development, in of poverty, shared prosperity, but the more important one issue of the fragility, pandemic, and of course, the transition to an orderly era of, of renewable fuels. And how to move on this entire issue of transboundary, challenging climate, and so on, we accepted the figure three trillion. So, once we haven't done that, it is reasonable to assume, and maybe Nick can comment on why it we been assumed that $2 trillion out of that will come from domestic resource mobilization. And of course, uh, I'll come to that in a second. Uh, and leaving aside, therefore, the one trillion, which is a one unaddressed. So, out of that, if you break up 500 billion from private capital, 500 billion from concessional non concessional flows. And on the uh, leaving aside the private capital, which made a comment, we assumed actually that uh, uh, private capital is certainly there, but it is not there for the asking. You have to do something to get it. And I think that needs to be addressed. What can be done to catalyze, to mitigate the risks, to incentivize? consistent with the avoiding any moral hazards in this process. So out of that, rest to the five hundred billion it meant that with the average EMTB, then it's about 110 to 120 billion. The non-exception here, yeah, we need to take this up to 300 billion. And I doubt language, Use the word languished as the figure of just thirty billion. But i really designed for low-income countries at that time at had 90 and 300 billion uh, you get to a figure of the triple which is around 400 billion now how do we intend to do that I think that we outline the broad framework in and uh, as I been pointed out by both uh, and uh, by Deepak, that a lot of that depends on how to make them, make them, before they get to bigger, how to make them better and So in one word, what do better mean? Better means in terms of having robust country platforms, getting the countries themselves to buy into the entire development matrix, enhancing the pipeline of practical projects, terms of technical support, which is needed, and old ways in which you can really enable clients to really be their satisfaction. In okay. so, so. terms of older, clearly, I mean, small so MTVs, is it really useful for them to work in silos? Can they not work as a family? What are the ways in which they can work as a family? What are the ways in which uh, you can harness the expertise and capability of one to the betterment of the other? And then, of course, uh, what are the other ways in which you can optimize when you become bolder? Instead sort of being risk averse, can you take more informed risk decisions? An example of being risk averse. Uh, you know, I just mentioned to you a spectacular record of the of the, MD, of the MDBs of been able to be very efficient intermediators of capital from $20 billion, uh, capitalization
3: from $900 billion,
0: which is really so much. Can
3: you do that for the private sector? Alas, the record
0: has been disappointing. It has been disappointing because the operational model does not really attach too much importance. In Incentive structures, targets, the way in which the MDBs are organized, the way in which the bureaucracy functions, the mindsets, and so on. So, uh, uh, Fumi, who made all this calculation in our uh, came to the conclusion that uh, against one dollar, we're really only 0.6 cents, which is a abysmal record. We'll push We've now pushed that, set targets on how much of private capital. That would require a mindset change for risk decision. Optimization also means that on the same balance sheet, can you get uh, more efficient lending operations, the better equity ratio, so on. So we came to the conclusion, by and large, that these two of the getting really uh, other entities in the world Bank, apart from the international bank of deconstruction development how do you get really IFC Liga to work in a more creative way and be part and parcel of the, the ability of to take more informed this decisions, decisions while retaining the triple status and which is critical for very efficient then, of course, you come to the bigger, because a lot of the bigger is contingent on some of the stuff But I have mentioned that it is also, also bigger in terms of five That if financial arithmetic compares you, then you have to think of a recapitalization. Of course, you can go into the semantics of the sequence and so on, so forth. So we have actually without that we have said, first be better, That's no-brainer, then be bolder, that's no-brainer, and then you move to bigger. And bigger would also require support from shareholders in terms of putting, putting more resources. Now, where the journey has traversed, Yesterday, I must say that, uh, in that, that uh, uh, it really heartens the members mm-hmm. of the independent expert group. Our two advisors, uh, Masood, uh, Deepak, without his intellectual support domain knowledge, uh, Masood, the position there, had the best ability to get the best minds to the really work on. His credibility is so high that hardly anyone he approached had the, the audacity to refuse Muslims' request. And so, with all this, and with all the bilateral effort which has gone into it by the finance minister, with has the presidency right now, I must say that uh, it was, uh, and we and Nick were very happy to hear that the concluding. A summary of the finance minister, which he said, including the discussions on the NDB, he said that there has been over wellness of these issues. Recent times, hardly a report just done in six months on a complex subject of this kind that has gathered this kind of traction from leaders of uh, G20 community. That's where we are in. Where do we proceed next? Uh, well, as the old saying, you can take the horse to water, you can't force it to drink. We have taken the horse to water. Horses are shown some inclination to drink. But ultimately, it's the MDBs who have to really uh, implement all this and look back on their shareholders that uh, they are holding the hands of the banks as their quest to become better or Stop yet, yeah, thank
2: you. <laughs> Um, seems Thank you so much again for outlining so clearly the recommendations in the report and stressing the political support that the report enjoys, Um say, now we'll to the devil is in the detail. Let's see, let's see how these recommendations are going to be implemented. And I want to ask good to comment particularly on the better report, let's put bigger aside for a second, because I think before we the the MDBs can get bigger, they really need to demonstrate how they can be better. Uh, and you said very clearly that, you know, better is linked to working better as a family, to work better, you know, in terms of uh, uh, being engaged uh, to country platforms. And um, Nick, that's something that you are uh, quite interested in on the border side. sectors. is really important. As you stress, the importance of so leveraging the power sector is fundamental to the border. Um, element. And and we've heard so much rhetoric about leverage the private sector for about ten years, if not more, uh, but we haven't really made that much progress. Maybe I start with you there to on the bolder side of the private sector. Um well, what would come first better or than we can change the order. You're <laughs> and I you and I are I think, kind of think we have a sequence.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're a
4: we better first. We're uh we team Better means delivering on Paris and the SDGs. That's the outcome that we're seeking. And it's that delivery uh, of that big strategic change that is the ultimate test of better. Um, And while we're doing Metaphors, uh, NK, the courses of water, as you know very well, there's a, a saying in India it's about as difficult as getting a buffalo out of a pond on a hot day. And I actually think the buffaloes are moving, and uh, that's very, very important. And let me begin by thanking NK um, and Larry for their leadership, thanking um, Finance Minister Nirmala Sivaravan for uh, her leadership and uh, support throughout all this. And of course, Deepak and uh, Masood and, 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 and Homi and Amar and Peter and all the team, much more than those who've uh, worked so hard to make this this possible. Um, So let me start with uh, the better story. It is about what we're trying to do. It's about the strategic goals and how we can deliver on those. And we have to recognise that um, the urgency of climate development when we put them together um, is not simply... uh, that development delayed is the is this going in and out? If it goes out, can you let me know? It's not simply that development delayed is development denied. It's tougher than that. Is that if we postpone action here, development in the future will be far more difficult. Actually, it could be impossible um, uh, because the climate will create conditions which uh, are so difficult that we go backwards, not forwards. So there's a sense of urgency here. Development challenges have always been urgent, but there's something on top of that now, is that if we delay, we will make development extremely difficult or impossible down the track. And this next 10, 15, 20 years is decisive. It will be the difference as the great climate scientist, Michael Mann has set out in his book, our fragile moment. It'll be made the difference between whether we have any chance of holding near to 1.5, which will be tough and difficult, but manageable with intelligent adaptation. To three, which is where we're headed 2.8, 2.93 on current policies, which will be uh, potentially civilization destroying. And anybody who tells you that let's go, it's a bit difficult, or, let's go a bit more slowly, there's an implicit climate denial in there. It's saying actually, you know, a bit more slowly, it won't matter that much. If we go a bit more slowly, it matters intensely. And it's the most vulnerable people in the world who will be hit earliest and hardest. And that sense of urgency is fundamental. And that's delivering them on Paris and uh, the SDGs, where more than 190 countries in each case summed up in 2015. It is the global agenda. It's absolutely fundamental. That's what we need. So that's where we start. And then we deduced, building on the work of Amar uh, and and colleagues, we then asked the question, uh, um, what kinds of investments by centre and geography do we have to pursue to deliver on those goals that we just described? Again, that's the meaning of better in uh, all, all this. And they can do the calculations this way and that way, but actually the people who tried to do it, and there have been a few have come up with roughly the same kinds of uh, overall numbers and geographies and sectors. Within this, of course, the energy transition is fundamental, and within the energy transition, the huge expansion of renewables is fundamental. That's on the way, but of course, uh, so building on momentum exists, but the acceleration is is, uh, critical. It means adaptation, it means natural capital. Uh, this is all part of the story, of the climate action within the story of the living on the uh, SDGs. They're not separate, really. the climate story is nested within the SDG uh, stories. So that's what this is all about, and it's about transformation. And if you go back to our discussions of development in the past, it's about getting investment going in physical capital and human capital, natural capital. This is now that's still the case. But this is about a transformation of our economies in real time. And that's a fundamental difference to the way we've seen development in the past. It's a transformation to a much cleaner story. Now, that's, I've emphasized why we must do it, and if we fail, we're in deep trouble. But there's a few positive side to this as well. It's not simply avoiding disaster, and surely it must be rational to. Uh, Avoid disaster, but we have in our hands the growth story. We have in our hands the growth story of the twenty-first century. What are the big drivers of that story? Well, the clean is already cheaper than the dirty across about thirty percent of emissions, and that will be true probably about seventy percent of emissions in seven, or eight, nine years' time. This is the area where innovation is moving at an extraordinary rate. Uh, the the uh, Technology is, in many ways, on our side, and it hasn't come out of nowhere, it's come out of a strategic emphasis on where we have to go. So number one is cost and uh, innovation. Number two is resource efficiency. Efficiency is productivity, is growth. Number three is that we're talking about systemic change to make systems perform much better. Cities, land, energy, transport, water. The systemic reforms that we need to do to get the changes we make will be about better performance of those uh, systems. We're talking about health. We kill 5 to 10 million people a year from air pollution. Much of it, not all of it, but much of it from the burden of fossil fuels. That's in the world where we probably see deaths of 50 plus million a year. Well, 5, five to 10 million in 50 plus of deaths is a very big part of the story. And it's not just the people that are Die, it's the meaning and stunting and so on associated with all that i hope we have a clear objective that 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 kind of damage to health is bad in itself but it's also bad for productivity so reversing it is good for growth and of course we live in a world where we've had insufficient investment for a very long time in keynesian language planned saving has been less than planned investment and that's had a depressing effect On growth and productivity. So, kicking up the level of investment is itself a very big part of growth. We're talking about in many emerging markets developing countries, the need to kick up investment by a few percentage points three, four, five of GDP, world as a whole, two or three percent of GDP. That is a growth story and it's a very attractive, much more attractive than the dirty models, destructive models of the past. So, as we emphasize the importance. Delivering on Paris and the SDGs, we must also recognize that actually the prize we're playing for is a, a much more attractive career of growth. It's not a degrowthing story, it's the opposite. It's a story of growth and development much, much better. Now, having said that, let's be very clear that this is not easy. This transformation, this increase in investment, the dislocation will inevitably bring, for example, in coal mining and coal mining communities, is extremely important. And the investments we need to make are also investments about managing a difficult transition which involves uh, dislocation. It involves investing in people and places, for example, in the case of of coal mine. But as we recognise those difficulties and work and invest to manage those difficulties, we have to recognise that this is an example where very low cost or grant money is going to be critical. As we look across the investments we need to make, we we recognize that the combinations of types of financial support will vary across those investments. And uh, I won't do that this much further because it it will be up some of these issues. Now what we've described, this is the last part of what I want to say, what we've described has very clear implications for the MDBs, the conditions All the investment that are going to create this strategic, uh, drive this strategic transformation are not yet there and they have to be built and they have to be built within a country, by a country, government, private sector, civil society, working together with the support of external players and particularly the MDBs who have quite a lot of experience in that kind of thing. The implications of what we've said for the work of the MDBs and what we mean by better is helping create the investment climate, the country platform, which sets out the strategic changes that you need to make within which this investment sits, will be a very big part of the story. Absolutely critical that this is led by the country, government, private sector, civil society, and um, that the MDBs have a tremendous amount that they can do. Um, So that's a big part of the story, which follows immediately from uh, what we just said. It also means that the bankers in the NDIS have to be both strategic and systemic transformers in support of the country uh, programmes, but they also have to be good investment bankers. And an investment banker and a development banker, ideally, the best of them, Come together in one personality. But they're not the same skills and they're not the same thing. So, that people who sit in these institutions, and they're mostly lovely people who we work with most of our lives, we're talking about a different skill set. And how that happens is important. And that's where the leadership of those institutions is going to have to um, push and push hard. Those skills are there in many of them. But what we're talking about, those skills being much more pervasive across those institutions than they uh, than they are. So the implications of what we've described in terms of what this finance will be supported, this whole strategic transformation investment story, imply very quickly aspects of the work, which NK uh, already uh, touched on, aspects of the work which uh, are going to have to change and have to change quickly. We haven't got time for the buffalo to emerge from the pond, slowly the buffalo's got a bit perched. The pond quickly he's probably, got, I'm actually stretching the metaphors now. We've probably, probably got the bit on the horse. So uh, that change is absolutely uh, fundamental and only very strong leadership right across those institutions. And so it's wonderful news, uh, uh, and congratulations to you and Finance Minister Nimala on bringing the shareholders behind this story. This is a big rapid change that can't happen without the leadership of the NDBs and the very strong support and action demand of the shareholders.
2: Thank you so much, Nick, for laying out very clearly what Benton is about. Investment climate to stress the urgency of helping reconcile the climate and development, which is the undercurrent. Debate, there's um, a campaign in the creation of this report, and you say that there's another one, it's about how you bring them together and you help countries navigate the trade off, how you create an investment plan that helps realize both of them. And you said something very important around uh, investment bankers and the type of investment they need to make. What is really needed is the authorizing environment that helps these brilliant people do the job. In many cases, they would like to do, and that's where the leadership is going to be so critical. And that comes to also being bolder in you know, leveraging the private kind of sector, which again, we see many colleagues being very keen to do, but being you know, held back by the, the fear that the risk could be too high perhaps for their own careers to start with. And how are we going to do this bolder? Thank you. Thank you. Um, let me start uh, by, again, thanking our two
5: uh, coaches, uh, N.K. and uh, Larry. And NK. Now we talk, as, as uh, N.K. said, at the other day, I think with uh, the certainty of having finalized the report, but the process, I think, was, uh, for me, uh, a huge privilege to be among N.K. and Larry and Nick and Tara, and the President of Singapore, and Aminio and Rachel. It was, I think, a really uh, a global debate about what we want to go to. And I, I just want to start by, we are in a world which is in crisis. And almost every morning when we wake up, there is yet another crisis, right? Right now, there's a borrowing sell-off. I don't know what's going to happen to a lot of the developing countries and the cost of their debt. And one just did the report. We may have to update it already because, you know, rates are going up again. Uh, of course, there is the conflict in uh, the Middle East. There is the Ukraine war. There is tightening of food resources and import bans being put around in many different countries. So every day we wake up and step out of our uh, homes, we're taking a risk. And and essentially, this report is about how we do risk mitigation, risk preparedness, and how we manage the vulnerabilities going forward. And as a global system, what are we going to do about those? Because if we cannot do that, then essentially, I think for all of us who went through the summer, uh, uh some scientists say that we actually hit the 1.5 planetary boundary for the first time uh in the world. This one, and we have to now kind of see how we roll And so the question is: can we raise the resources that are required to make sure that we do risk mitigation and that we do preparedness? You know, it's not just COVID pandemic preparedness. It is development
2: that we're trying to
5: do with this report. So just to put it in the context of where we want to go and how we want to do it. And I think we would have never been able to get the kind of maybe traction that the report is getting if we hadn't had the capital adequacy framework that had Peters and Prani and the rest did. And 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 also then the MDBs responded a little bit to it and we began to say, oh, but it's really awesome, right? Uh, because immediately the report was done, you know, uh, uh, EIB, the World Bank, ADB and all that came and said, oh, we found 5 million more, we found 10 million more. And then people began to think, oh, maybe there are some resources if they want more, can what can do. So this is really building up on, on, on that report. And of course, we had spoken about uh, the climate, uh, finance for climate action, which Amanda it myself did, uh, uh, with uh, also a, a lot of colleagues. So it was bringing together, all of these reports are really delivered Now, on the private sector side, we cannot, as a global market development system with $130 billion, do the risk mitigation, do the prosperity uh, 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 that we need to, to bring to the you know, global world, ensure that they can cut poverty. We are living in the periods where actually poverty numbers are going backwards for the first time in our history. It's amazing work of uh, decreases in poverty in Morocco, in you know, less than 15 years, they went from 20% of the population living uh, below the poverty line to three. This is what good development, good leadership with a private sector that works can do. And this is the point of the They were able to leverage in $8, nine billion investments, investment in the technology sector, investment in the rail and road sector, investment in the automobile sector. In the next 10 years, 60 million cars are going to be EP cars. So there is an opportunity there for growth. The private sector wants to come together, but there is risk. And this is where then the MDBs and the border part becomes important is can we use our guarantees to make sure that this, you know right now we are mobilizing you know, we we're not using our guarantees as much as, as we should. Are we deploying them well? Um, um, can we make sure that we share the guarantee platform so that if the ADB wants other guarantees they can come to the IBRD and ask for the guarantees that they can use? Can we make sure that the system allows, not give a guarantee for a $100 million project, but give a guarantee for a billion dollar project, right? And that's where some of the uh, mobilization comes from. We're talking about, you know, going from about 60 to $240 million in mobilization to bring the private sector to the table. But to do that, we have to convince them that we're de-risking their investment. Because, yes, there's still in an environment like the one that we live in, you know, not all countries can do cost-reflective tariffs uh, 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 in, in, and, and charge them appropriately because we have a huge large mile, mile problem. And so essentially, you need to be able to tell investor when he comes in, prices will not move on you. You know, the economic and fundamentals with which you did your project will not move on you. And I think that's where the guarantees become Really important. The interesting thing is that they haven't been used that much. So, and as NK uh, was talking about, the amazing leverage that the MDBs are able to, to to demonstrate just gives you that sense. With the urgency of what we need to do, and the private sector sees that, they want to do more. They don't want to come around with us and say, you know, let's do little projects. And they want to go at scale. To go at scale, you need the right staff. So it doesn't take a year and a half for a project to get finished. It takes six months for that to do. You need the kind of de-risking, the kind of... So we de-risk the world growth by providing better resources, by being born undertaking taking risks. We de-risk the private sector by providing resources so that they can come in and use the resources of the MDBs either to do project preparation, do the more risky investment phases, and then go forward. And I think this is... We've been talking a lot, you know, 390 million is what the MDBs will finally put on the table, but then we can leverage... We hope a trillion dollars from the private sector to bring that together. And Mankani talks about the 136 trillion dollars that is in the private sector. It's amazing how the private sector wants to come together, you know, with the public sector to do a lot of this. Uh, we just saw uh, a few days ago Tanzania is about to, you know, issue a billion dollar bond essentially around a debt swap um, to do uh, debt for climate uh, development using the proceeds. This is the important part. It's what we use those policies for, for cleaner energy, right? And, and so essentially the growth story comes together with the private sector story, comes together with the poverty reduction story, which is hopefully the new triple agenda of global institutions. But that's where the private sector comes in, is their expertise. But all this could never happen if you don't have leadership in the country and leadership institutions. You must always be the country leadership. and see, I think many examples, Egypt being one of them, where changes in India being one of them, Egypt another, changes in policy, coming up with a program that is a common program, uh, uh, allows then for the MDBs to come in and buy into that program. It's very difficult if the MDBs convince countries to do that and convince the sector to do that. So I think we are living in risk, but huge opportunity because I don't think we've ever seen the kind of interest of the private sector, by the private sector for development, as we have seen today. And so we have a window of opportunity to be able to really use that to leverage, leverage most so we've been talking about business for a while, but I think now we can really deliver on it if only we put our minds to it. I think the news from NK about the reception of the reports uh, uh, from the finance ministers is just a, uh, uh, an amazing um, piece of information that would have never happened again, like uh, Masoud. Uh, uh, Deepak, of course, always been uh, uh, making sure that every number and every uh, word in the report was important. And for the low income countries, I just want to say, and we have the statistics in the report, a lot of these meetings we end up sort of adding, and of course, for IDA. In the last 10 years, shareholder contributions to IDA have not gone up. They have actually gone down. In the say, at the same time, a lot of the IDA countries have gone to markets where the cost of capital has gone up. So just with those two numbers, we are actually creating poverty as much as we talk. And net transfers from the MDBs to emerging market economies has, is actually uh, equal. So essentially all the money that is going to the emerging market economies is just to pay back the debt of the MDBs. We cannot achieve a bigger bet- better and the world if this is how the financing structures and financing flows are going to be. They must change. They have to change. And the reason why we continue to insist that the MBbs is because of the cheaper financing. The cost of resources, of course, is the first most difficult part of development. It's too expensive to borrow. Then you're going to get into debt even before you start seeing the gains of your investment. So it's very, very important that we have this initial resources to put in place and not all projects are going to be uh, uh have a risk uh, uh, adjusted rate of return that is positive so they are still going to be and I was talking with uh, homie about it because he's the architect of the La Neptune project at the time when everybody was doing lastnam2 it wasn't risk uh, uh, uh the, the risk return uh, uh, on, on that project that was important but today it is supplying all the energy the diamond and all and it is profitable and libraries can grow but at the time it was just a fundamentally transformational project for the sub region and for the country and needed to be done and this is the value I think of the MDBs this is where the better MDB comes around is you know you bring the best team in the world to prepare a project that is as transformational as nt do. And maybe eventually the interdams work up and, and, and we get it going so i think this is the, the value of this process is, like you said uh uh the 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 the, the think tanks are doing bigger a better holder now the rest of us have to come over to be a better holder thank you so much and you're right we're sitting on the MDBs
2: because that's what they were set up to do. They were set up to have bigger retail investment to maximize their investment. They were set up to help address fundamental challenges in you know, countries that are trying to move people out of poverty. And that is the reminder that we need to put to the end this. But thank you so much for laying out incredibly clearly recommendations of the reports and the roadmap I uh, have. We've got about 20-25 minutes. So I want to over to the audience a lot of incredibly um knowledgeable colleagues in the room and plenty more online. For those who are online, put your questions in the chat. I'll come to the chat after up. first opportunity to collect questions uh, from the room. There should be another one in mind. I hope but wise to part this reply. Uh, yes please so uh, Bianca will Bring the the mic. Raise your hand. Um, say who you are if you have a particular affiliation. Uh, let me brief and concise. Start with please over there. Thank you very much. Um, of
3: course I haven't read the book, but I did actually get. I did actually get a quick look. Can you please introduce yourself? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Louise Fox, and um, I'm with Brookings and also UC Berkeley. I'm an independent consultant, and I was. Uh, I also have been working with the UN on the multi dimensional vulnerability uh, as part of the high level camp. So uh, I really liked the focus on. Growth, development, and climate change. I think it speaks much better to where developing countries are today. Just to hear about climate change, while their own concerns are the welfare of the people more broadly, and staying that welfare of people, it's a much better uh, focus. So that's great. What I missed in the report is a little bit about the political economy. Um, and especially the political economy of private financing, even if it's mixed with some concessional or, uh, uh, or guarantees from the MDBs. Uh, private sector financing uh, doesn't always agree with the political economy of countries where I work on, which is mostly Africa, um, because um, they're just strong interest groups that don't benefit from it. Some of these are, um, for example, private sector financing in the social sectors and the water sector hasn't worked out very well. Uh, There are public sector unions. And then in some of the hard infrastructure sectors, there are natural monopolies uh, that are uh, operated through state-owned enterprises. And uh, governments and the state-owned enterprises both benefit from uh, being non-transparent and being public. And private finance requires more transparency. The risks are complicated. If you invested, if uh, if um, somebody invested, okay, I'll make this quick. If somebody invested in a private uh, solar uh, farm in Africa, uh, say in 2015 or 2012, they got an off take uh, a price agreement with the monopoly to buy at a certain price, which is much higher than they would have to pay today. And so, governments say, why should I, why should I make that? Take that risk. Okay, Please. so I just wish you would speak to the political economy of how these reforms will play out in developing countries. Thank you. Thank you, Louise.
2: Um, Michael?
6: You. Uh, Michael Jacobs, um, Professor of political Economy at the University of Sheffield, and i visiting senior fellow at ODI. Uh, congratulations, all of you. This is, a, this is an extraordinarily ambitious uh, and necessary uh, agenda that you've set out and so the fact that you've got this straight in front of the Finance Ministers uh, already is uh, a boon to all of us. I wanted to ask about something which glancing through the report you talk about, but as far as I can see, you don't make a particular suggestion, which is currency risk. The cost of capital, as everybody knows, in most of the low-income and middle-income world is much, much higher than in the high-income countries. And this is a huge barrier to private sector investment. Lots of credit committees in private sector investors don't go near emerging markets, even the the highly bankable ones, just because of the perceived risk. Um, And one of the problems is currency risk, a major part of the problem. And uh, the, uh, as Avinash Pessoa's analysis of this has suggested, current, current currency hedging mechanisms, including by TCX, which is the kind of specialist in this field, are still very expensive. And part of the problem is the time frame and the pool of countries over which risk is hedged. Clearly the best way of currency risk hedging is to pool over as many countries as possible, uh, over as long a time period as possible. And the only institutions which can really do that are the multilateral development banks, which have long existences. They're not planning to go out of business anytime soon, and lend across all currencies, or could do, except that they don't. They tend to lend in the same currencies as the private. Uh, as uh, we know, okay. does the report have I missed? It? Does the report say anything about the banks themselves lending in local currencies? Thank you,
2: Michael. Obviously, these emphasise.
7: Maybe you there. the water world of the Netherlands. Um, another question on crowding in private finance. Uh, a little bit in the line of broader interventions. Um, you can do that at project level, which the MDBs often try, not the MDBs in project level, you can do it at sector level. In my country, in the water sector, in the water bank, Which actually is a public bank that attracts private financing, and you can do it at the country level. Um, Vera used the example of the green bond in Tanzania. Should we say something more about what's possible and in how far the project by project approach that the MDBs are still in and the discussion about bankable projects have a very high transaction cost? That's not how we do it in Europe. So why are we forcing low middle income countries? To go at that point in and how far can we change to a sector level or country level? That's a leading question. Thank you. That's a no, very good one. Um,
2: someone behind the idea? Yeah, not. The oh, sorry.
8: Thank you. uh am Dennis the Black Sea Chicken but thanks. bank. Um, the report is very well written and excellent. And congratulations to to you for it. Um, my question is this: um, It has a presumption of improving cooperation on um, the critical level globally, and yet what we're seeing is quite the opposite. And a few months ago, we also had something that has never really happened: before. we had a development institution that was slapped sanctions sanctions, in the International Investment Bank, based in Hungary, for being more Russian. Presumably, then, they want um, the, um It was the by the United States. And that is just maybe the most extreme example of what we have seen with politics in the But we know of a lot of countries. Um, we know that politics is uh, always pervasive in this process. We are seeing great officials globally, and yet your assumption is that we will be able to work together with it um, in the face of what we're seeing right now perhaps, I, I don't know how to comment on that, um, because the trend really is really not that favorable, um, at yes, like I said, um, the underlying assumption of the report is that we will be able to talk with the
2: in a common branch. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Laura and Laura uh, Kelly from the Institute of Environmental Development. Can you hear me okay? Um, yes, I haven't had a chance to look at the report yet, but um, the presentations that the panel gave, I think suggest that it is a really important agenda. Can you hear me now? Sorry, apologies. Um, yes, congratulations to the panel on a good report. I haven't looked at it yet, so this may well be in there and I haven't seen it. But um, picking up on Nick's analogies of um, animals, uh, what about debt, which is potentially the elephant in the room here? Um, Vera touched on sort of, Tanzania doing a green bond type swap. But for many low income countries, they are on the verge of debt unsustainability. I think the figures talked about in the main meeting yesterday were around about 39%. What the panel's recommendations be to help NICs climb out of that debt hole and start on urgent investments that are? Uh, I need to
9: you know, my general report. Thank you. Thanks, Gert, and now will come back to the panel. Uh, yeah, my name is uh, Martin Schapers. I'm the CEO of uh, ILX, which is a Dutch-based asset manager investing in MDB loans uh, on behalf of Dutch and uh, other European pension funds. Uh, the report is uh, is wonderful. hugely ambitious, and I really hope that it's taken incredibly seriously. Uh, the things I would just recommend are emphasized because it's a bit missing. Uh, is to really emphasize the value of the states of the MDBs and international financial institutions in terms of that be risking that that status provides and the privilege and immunity they carry, uh, which I think the private sector uh, can can lean on uh, significantly and is hugely stable at low cost to the shareholders. That's a message I see missing in the meeting. The other thing is the creation of development finance as an asset class, which means harmonisation, which I think is mentioned across risk, but also across uh, impact and uh, sustainability, climate outcomes. In Europe, we've got a very highly developed uh, sustainable finance um, disclosure um, directive, and uh, which I think is driving a lot of the asset allocation. The MDB, we are an Article Nine fund. So it's fully recognized in terms of but the harmonization across the system is really critical. So we can call on, on putting more pressure on this harmonization of data, both from the risk but also from the impact sector. Thank you. Thank you very much. A great set of questions. If we are really brief, I'll give you the floor,
2: but you have to be
10: My name is Jean-François D'Artif. I'm coming from Results Canada, and I'm looking at this from an advocacy angle, very different to non-academic uh, point. And uh, my eye was drawn on page 54. I didn't read anything, it here, just happened to ah. read page 54. And it says that what is required is 0.04% of either donor GNI to cover for the IDA cross. That's really extremely doable. And I think it's so important to emphasize this because we're not asking for something that's incredible. We're already giving it around 0.3, it's 0.04%. I think, would you speak to the doability of this? And does this require, I think the report may not be speaking about this because it's not the mandate necessarily the kind of expert group, but what is required in increases of ODA, generally speaking, to a company that's increasing IDA, I mean, is there a sense of what's required? Because 0.04%, just to repeat myself, is eminently doable.
7: Thank you very much.
2: It's a, a great collection of uh, questions. Okay, do you want to start?
0: Thank you very much. Uh, it almost looked as though we were in the process of debating about ourselves the contents of the report. But each of the points which have been raised by people who have, by very informed interventions are issues which have been reflected in some form or the other, and certainly not an oversight and we have gone into this uh, something. Make one or two comments, and of course, co families will comment more. Maybe take a comment on project by project, which is a complete duplication of time and exhausting. Exactly. We agree with it fully. That is why we hope that in making it uh, better, the robust structural platforms we are talking about is precisely designed to avoid that and to be able to take not a project-by-project project approach, but a multi-year approach. Uh, I'm happy to inform you uh, to the questioner and to others that I, I asked this question yesterday. I had it a panel uh, after the presentation. Where uh, Banga was also present, so was the US Treasury Secretary in that panel. And Banga replied that I'm very happy to do not project by project, and I'm very happy to do a multi year, but I hope that my executive board sees the right instructions for the shareholder. So, I mean, in a sense, there's no disagreement on that. And that's something which uh, I think uh, will, will get traction. Foreign exchange risk. No, I, I want to look at Hans-Peter and then, of course, at Homi. All the multiplicity of ways in which uh, the issue was debated, discussed, dropped. I kept asking Masood and Deepak that I hope that there is a, some stuff there. And please read it. Uh, it's not only there at some length. Uh, but uh, I just looking at some remarks which I made, uh, which I had the privilege to make to the finance ministers while introducing the, this report uh, yesterday evening. And this is what I said. Uh, MDBs should provide comprehensive support for foreign exchange risk management for themselves as well as for the private sector. This could be done by building offshore hedging mechanisms to a, such a scale commensurate with the need, such, and that's only an example, as a PCX, uh, and of course, establish a shared onshore MDB treasury platform undoubtedly offer more, more local currency options. Clients. I said very briefly yesterday, the report has a fuller matrix on But let me also tell you that uh, in the brief <coughs> comments that the president of the World Bank made, uh, he supported most of the ingredients. He said one of the very problematic things, far from your thinking that the MDBs are well placed. Sponga said that one of the most problematic recommendations was what to do on this uh, foreign exchange management. and indeed, the International Monetary Fund has some modules. That's an area where I believe uh, uh, the MDB can work in greater tandem with the IMF also. But this proposal of ours has been crafted with... uh, after some robust recommendation, uh, with the international body of Market Hans Peter, do you want to comment on this? Since you have, uh, have gone through this process, and then for me, uh, because we have gone through this. Uh, and this is an important issue.
11: Hans Peter, just introduce yourself. Yes, I'm Hans Peter. I guess with with the, the LSC and uh, incoming uh, managing director of COI, ODI. Um, just on this point, and you made the, best, the most important uh, points there. We, we highlight in the report the fact that uh, there has to be a much uh, greater impetus to local currency financing by the NPDs if they really want to scale up, because otherwise there will be huge um, imbalances at the country level uh, if that does not uh, happen. Uh, So um, we we do urge the MDBs as as such to to go out and and increase their local currency funding. We highlight these two avenues, the offshore avenue through TCX, which is a uh, something that can probably be boosted relatively quickly, but that is uh, sort of a short-term fix to the problem. We also highlight the need for onshore uh, for working onshore, both to create money markets, which is where the IMF can be, can play an important role, and there's a discussion going on with the IMF now, to, to improve the capability of money markets, and to enable uh, DFIs through a, a common platform to source local currency. Uh, that is important because it is, it is going to be the longer term, uh, more sustainable solution to this uh, problem. So, we we highlight those. We don't go into great detail. We do recognize that these are very challenging uh, initiatives. It's important to keep uh, the impetus behind them.
0: Omie, since you had to graph this uh, portion, by the way, one of the most difficult areas which Omie you did, Characters brilliance and precision. I'm uh, Holy Karas from the
12: uh, Brookings Institution. Uh, so, obviously at uh, the uh, individual project uh, the foreign exchange risk is a uh, issue. The revenue is offering uh, local currency, and, uh, expenses and uh, debt service in uh, foreign exchange. That I think also needs to be balanced. By the uh, point that, at a macro level, if we're going to have a significant expansion of investment, as uh, it outlined, you're also likely to have a larger current account deficit. That yeah. larger current account deficit has to be financed by foreign exchange. When you look at the MDBs, the MDBs may may have, in some cases, a comparative advantage in providing foreign exchange compared to national governments. Whereas, because normally when MDBs borrow and lend in national currency, they're doing it at roughly the same rates as the sovereign. When they do it in foreign currency, then perhaps giving countries an advantage of several hundred basis points, depending on the uh, credit worthiness of the uh, country. So from a macro point of view, you actually have MDBs a, a preference by countries for the MDDs to provide a foreign exchange, but from a project point of view, it should be in uh, local currency. So that's the, in some sense, the balance that needs to be uh, worked out. One of the things that we recommend is that ultimately the way to do that balance is the balance that the national governments are doing every day when they think about their own debt management, their public debt management. All these public debt management offices are thinking about how to optimize the extent to which uh, they should be borrowing locally uh, versus Internationally, uh, and that same set of considerations should come through in thinking about how the MD, what role the MDBs should take. So, I don't think it's a uh, simple uh, problem. Sometimes people come at it just from a project point of view and say the big obstacle is we've got to get this foreign exchange uh, risk taken care of. That's exactly right from a project cost benefit analysis, it may not be right from a uh, macro point of view, and it's ultimately going to be the government that's going to do the uh, balancing between those two in asking for the kind of offerings that it uh, looks to the MPs for. Thank you. Um, Per, do you want to comment on any other questions?
2: Yeah, no. Just quickly,
5: I think uh, a very good questions, and again, a lot of these questions uh, we debated and and, and discussed uh, profusely, and people changed their minds during the course of the process as we were talking about it. But I think three things. The first one, uh, uh, maybe on what is needed, and what we're asking this year. what is is zero point four uh, percent, as you said. You know. Twenty three, uh, uh, twenty five billion dollars was the either contribution in two thousand and nine. Twenty, uh, uh twenty three. So twenty five in two thousand and nine, it was twenty three in twenty twenty. a twenty five percent drop in contributions, uh, in either side. Uh, uh, and, and and essentially we are asking, you know, just to keep that, or you know, we are asking for zero point four. We want to triple it, of course, to. Uh, from 30 billion today to 90 billion. So the, the, when you put it in, in sort of comparative terms, you know, 114 billion has already gone to Ukraine in less than a year. Uh, uh, and, and we say for all of the, you know, either countries give 90 and it's a long conversation. So I think, you know, the, the UK uh, is uh, not 0.7, right? It's mm-hmm. the promise. And we're asking for 0.4. So we're actually even underperforming what was the global agreement of what needs to be done so, so I, And I think that's really the message, is that with that little effort, supposedly little effort, of course the world is a contractual, the world is slowing, or, and, and so we can always find reasons why it's not the right time, and you know, uh, with all the crises developed countries have, you know, tensions and inflation. But I think really when you put it in, in and that's why I think the report is, is, is great in giving the numbers, because just talking about it, everybody says we don't have the resources, but when you find out what, what we're talking about, going from 60 uh, billion to 240 billion in crowding in private investment, in, in you know, $25 trillion dollars of US debt out there, this is a, a drop in the bucket. But I think the payoff is so high that we hope that in this environment, uh, it becomes worthy of, of, the, of our shareholders to do. I think on the question around the political economy of these reforms, the private sector, the public sector, First uh, of all, I want to start by saying it's not only in Africa. I mean, you can go to Latin America, you can go to the United States, right? And the example that you gave will be exactly the same, and sometimes it's not worse, right? Uh, uh, so I think we have to be careful about sort of the, the stigmatization of that. And by the way, uh, when we look at Project Defaults, Antonio has done a report that shows that Africa does not default as much as many other geographies. Uh, actually, we are the least supporting continent. And so again, this perception issue has to be clarified very quickly. But I think we've been able to do in the Philippines, at least of the IFC, when I was at the IFC, you know, we have some fantastic water projects that have done extremely well. You do have water projects in Banana and Togo that are now being replicated in India in, in, in some states. So there is the possibility, I think, even with the political economy, uh, you know, the most child good behavior. Uh, for, for development in Singapore and, you know, the political economy. one we can debate uh, whether that's where we want to go or not, right? Uh, uh, the, the country that has reduced poverty the most in the last two days is uh, uh, it's China. Uh, my sense is that what we want to do is to say, what is the strategy of the country? Do we agree with the results of the impact of, of, of where they're going and how can we then achieve it? And, and, and the private sector, I think, is not so concerned about the political economy as they are concerned about the transparency of the political economy, the stability of rules really and regulations to be able to then enact. Because it's not so much that you're setting to a monopoly utility, it's whether that monopoly utility will change prices of your own. Right, and so if you send to a monopoly utility, that will never change prices on you. You're better off than selling to three utilities that are competing, but who are going to change prices on you? The private sector will not come. So I think we also have to be careful about what we're looking for. Is it? Uh, 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 and in some economies that are so small, you cannot have a multiplicity of utilities. You'll have three or four uh, that work well. So, so I think what 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 you need is really. Who is who has the possibility and the ability to change the risk? And that person then should be the one where the penalty of risk change falls upon. And I think once we have those kinds of very clear and stable groups, then it's very easy to bring in uh, the private account. That's what we say in the report. And, and, and I think that's where Mike's uh, comment about sort of a global program as opposed to project by project becomes important because most of the time. The political economy of rule change happens with the same people, whether it's the energy sector, the water sector, or uh, uh land reform, for example. But if you have a government that says we're gonna have stable rules and all of these things, then we can actually create a whole of country program that goes in and works with them to deliver. In in Morocco, for example, the agriculture uh, uh unit is a one big public sector monopoly that then redistributes the phosphate company is a big monopoly. But look at the results, right? It is their strategic direction that is firm, that is confident, and that takes and puts in place the right investment conditions to so attract the private sector.
4: Thank you. We're almost out of time, but I want to take four points very quickly. The language of ambition is not the one that I would want to use. If you do what's necessary to avoid disaster, is that ambitious? That's um, not. I think a good way of expressing what we are recommending is a major transformation. There's no doubt about the size, but it is what's necessary. Second, a point point raised about crowding in. Okay, it's not language I feel very comfortable with. We have four sources of finance here. Domestic resource in rank order of magnitude. Domestic resource mobilisation, private sector, MDBs and the very concessional money. Of course, they have to add up to what we need. But deeper than that is how they combine together the different parts of the investment that you need to make. Some parts, nearly all grant money. Some parts, nearly all private money. But the domestic resource mobilization, and and N.K. rightly put that question uh, to us, is of fundamental importance. It's of fundamental importance because of the sheer magnitude of the uh, resources that are necessary and indeed in most countries around the world the big bulk of investment is financed by domestic savings um, Hans and Hans Peter and I only touched on the importance of um, mobilising domestic capital markets, that's all part of domestic resource mobilisation. It's not just the public balance sheets, the, it's the private uh, flows, private savings as well. So the magnitude and the uh, uh, tapping of those markets is the first reason why domestic resource mobilisation is so important. The second is sustainability. This is, we're in a hurry, we must move quickly, but this is a long push. This is not something that just takes five years, even though the next five or ten years is so important. And if you're going to sustain support for the kinds of investment increases we're talking about... Then the domestic resources will be key part of that. And the final reason why domestic resource mobilization is so important is, is ownership. This, these are investments which are by the country for the country and created within the country. And that ownership is so important. So when you talk about crowding, crowding in, I'd much rather we talked about how you combine these four sources of finance. To get the scale, to manage the risk, to use the right combinations in different places. And that's the uh, name, that's the name of, of, of the game. Uh, Jean Francois, you mentioned how small all, all this is. If you you mentioned, um, Ida, if you add in what's necessary for the other capitalizations and so on, as the MDPs, for the UK, excuse me for using that example, so yeah. by accident where I come from. For the UK, it's probably three or four beers a year in total. But I mean, if, if you don't like alcoholic metaphors, then it might be separate cups of coffee a year yeah, to, for the UK to play its role in this huge transformation that simultaneously takes us away from the threats of climate or the worst of them and embarks on a new form of growth and development. NK made that very clearly at the beginning. This is incredible value for money. And we've all sat uh, in the finance ministries, and the job of the finance ministries is to say, well, not really, it's later. And actually, this is incredible value for money and it's uh, urgent. So thank you, Jean-François, for that. Finally, on collaboration, we do indeed live in a uh, fractious world. Um, that observation is not a reason to give up, it's actually a push to try to find ways of collaborating around the big issues of the day. And it's remarkable how, at least on climate and the environment and poverty reduction, people are willing to uh, agree, or perhaps I should say more willing to agree than they are on other subjects. And if you can get together around these big ones of um, climate, environment, poverty reduction, sustainable growth, then it makes those other areas not definitely tractable, but at least less uh, intractable. So I think what we're talking about here is an area of collaboration that has the best chance of succeeding, that doesn't mean it guarantees success for plenty.
2: Thank you so much, NK, uh, Vera, Nik and Deepak and Masood. Uh, I learned a lot about uh, how ambitious the report was, but I really like what you said, Nick. I think what the report does is it gives us a very clear roadmap from everything I've heard for the reforms that are necessary, given the urgency of the challenges that we need to address. And we've heard you know, about the political support that the report enjoys, so I think this is now the moment you know, for ministers to set some very clear commitments and, and timelines uh, for the reforms that we need to see. So I think really needs will be a turning point. Um, all I need to do before um, letting me go is really to give a big shout out to the teams in Delhi, in uh, London, in Washington DC, and here in Marrakesh. has been a, a truly global operation across four continents to bring together this event here and online. And allow me also, a very you know, important personal shout-out to Annalisa has who is really the hands-on hero of books everything together Thanks for Thanks so much for the for the event. The recording of the event will be online later today on the ODI and CGD website. For those who are in the room, there are refreshments the at the back. And please join me in thanking N.K., Vera and